Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Welcome to The Nose, our weekly cultural roundtable. So, um, a little bit later in the show, um, well, it's a story, a story about an autocratic regime which decides to scapegoat one of its minorities and then uh, artificially and fictitiously deepen the stigma against that minority and then publicly and theatrically deport that minority and claim victory. Does that sound familiar? Does it sound like anything that might be happening somewhere else? Uh, In Wes Anderson's movie Isle of Dogs, it happens in a futuristic city in Japan. The people being deported aren't people, they're dogs. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about that or a lot about that really in our second segment. But as we begin, uh, two topics here in the first segment, we'll be talking about what I refer to is as resting Zuckface, the cultural event of the week, you could argue, was testimony before Congress, which is kind of a weird thing. Uh, but Mark Zuckerberg, the man, well, as a writer for The Ringer, uh, Kate Nibbs, I think is her name, put it, the dork who controls all of our lives gets yelled at. Um, that's about as good as, um, as a, a short uh, summation uh, of what happened in Congress this week. We'll talk a little bit about the optics and theatrics of that. Uh, we're also going to talk about the fact that there's another movie that's out right now that John, we would have gone to see, except Jonathan McNichol thinks I'm too much of a fraidy cat. Uh, it's called uh, The Quiet Place, and um, there's some problems with it, you know, at least for people who like to eat in movie theaters, which is you're supposed to be really, really quiet while you're watching this movie. All right, we'll tell you a little bit about that and expand it into other people's areas of discontent. But yeah, we do, at the beginning here, have to talk uh, about Mr. Zuckerberg. You know what? Let's just play the clip, Wolfie. So, I mean, you must have heard all this stuff until it's coming out of your ears. Uh, but uh, here's Zuckerberg uh, talking to a bunch of not entirely friendly members of Congress. Well, how do you sustain a business model in which users don't pay for your service? Senator, we run ads. If I'm email, if I'm emailing emailing within WhatsApp, does that ever inform your advertisers? No, we don't see any of the content in WhatsApp. It's fully encrypted. Right, but the, is there some algorithm that spits out some information to your ad platform? And then, let's say I'm emailing about Black Panther uh, within WhatsApp. Do I get a WhatsApp? Do I get a Black Panther uh, banner ad? Senator, we don't, Facebook systems do not see the content of messages being transferred over WhatsApp. Yeah, I know, but that's that's not what I'm asking. I'm asking about whether these systems talk to each other without a human being touching it. Will Facebook offer to all of its users a blanket opt-in to share their privacy data with any third-party users? Congresswoman, yes, that's how our platform works. You have to opt in to sign into any app before you use it. All right, so let me tell you who's here. Parker Who is a graphic designer who performs in a bunch of different local bands. That's how we first met her, I think. Uh, Kate Russian is a poet who teaches writing and literature for Hartford Youth Scholars. Uh, Bill Usman is director of the Media Literacy and Digital Culture Graduate Program at Sacred Heart University. Um, 
Parker, uh, one of the uh, other uh, writers for The Ringer in a podcast I was listening to said that, uh, and you could really hear it in that clip, that when Zuckerberg uh, talks to uh, the people in Congress, it's like he's talking to Siri because he'll go, Congresswoman, (laughs) Senator. (laughs) He does it in this very kind of overdetermined way too. It's kind of like he is talking to Alexa or Siri or something like that. This was, I think, you know, I mean, there might have been some interesting policy considerations somewhere floating around in all these eight hours of testimony, but I'm actually pretty familiar with this topic and I didn't really necessarily hear them. It seems to me it was a little bit more theater. What kind of theater was it? It was sad theater for um, people who are digitally literate. Mm. And it's funny you said that about the way that Mark was talking to, um, talking on the panel, because to me it came across as a, someone who's trying very hard to either not laugh or not sound completely disdainful of the person asking the question because in his it, you know if you know anything about Facebook and its terms of service or the things you have to do to participate in it a lot of these are duh questions and uh, I think he was trying not to say duh <laughs> so he said senator um, all right so um, Bill uh, one of the ba- the battles that Washington did did win, maybe the only one, was to get Zuckerberg to dress up. He is, well, I'm going to read from Robin Given, the Pulitzer Prize winning fashion critic for the Washington Post. Did anyone really think uh, Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg would come to Capitol Hill to testify before Congress wearing a t-shirt or a hoodie? Of course he'd wear a suit. He wore a tie too. No matter how deserved his reputation as a cultural disruptor and a Silicon Valley savant, he knows the difference between chatting up millennials on some LEED certified tech campus and being roasted over the flames in a wood-paneled Senate hearing room. He understands traditions and protocol. He knows how the establishment works. I mean, there is, you know, this is part of your stock and trade, sort of visual signifiers, uh, optics, staging. Uh, How did uh, particularly Zuckerberg's sartorial choices land with you? Well, for you know, I'm I'm like the last person to talk about men's fashion. I was I was a complete wet mess until my wife fixed me, and uh, even then, there's a lot of backsliding. I've been known to uh, sport the hoodie way too often, just as he does. Uh, the semiotics of Mark Zuckerberg, though, are it, I I think they are kind of a, a window into into what's happening here, and. There is there is something that jumps out at you when you see someone in a suit who you don't normally picture in a suit. This was very studied. I think this was part of his, you know, the the I mean, it's an obvious choice that you have to make, but I'm sure at some point, you know, part of that team of experts that he hired to, you know, kind of coach him on how he was supposed to appear. Um, they also, I'm sure, I, I have no doubt they also gave him fashion advice too. And so, you know, it, 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 it is part of this whole theater of making this kind of studied act of contrition so that he can get back to the office and continuing, you know, with his plans to rule the world. Right. Although, I mean, you know, Kate is the probably, the, well, no, absolutely the best dressed and best accessorized uh, member of any nose panel, I, I think, that we ever have. Um, this is a subject that dear to your heart, I would assume. But, you know, Zuckerberg's explanation of why he wears the same outfit every day, it's, it's usually, you know, a kind of grayish T-shirt and sensible jeans, as one writer said, uh, and the hoodie. Uh, he says, I really want to clear my life to make it so that I have to make as few decisions as possible possible." 
about anything except how best to serve this community. That sounds a little sententious and self-congratulatory, but I mean the clothes that people wear, uh, particularly as dictated by the circumstances they're in, often do say something. Well, I would I would say that uh, neither the suit nor the hoodie covers up his snide condescension. And, you know, rich techies uh, looking down uh, is, is nothing new. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm most concerned about the divide that I see among people who grew up with a smartphone in their hand from like 18 months and those of us who haven't. I think, you know, Facebook thing, that's, that's gone, that's past. But I, I do, I'm very concerned about how people from uh, different generations will relate to each other going forward. Did you think it was snide and condescending? Definitely. <laughs> I mean, you know, the thing is, like, no matter what he's wearing, there's still that face. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I saw him as this, but I saw him as you had alluded to earlier. The New York Times did run this piece before he got up there, saying that they had hired a team that included people who worked for for prior presidents and stuff like that to give him, I think, a, fra- a, a crash course in charm and humility uh, was the um, which you can't actually do in a crash course. <laughs> I would like to point out that's just sort of a losing proposition to begin with. But I don't know. I actually sort of uh, maybe I, I didn't read it the right way. I actually sort of thought that in to the best of his somewhat limited abilities, he was being kind of conciliatory to a bunch of people who were asking him a lot of pretty angry and and not terribly thoughtful questions. I think he's just waiting waiting them out. You know, he knows, you know, this too will pass. Right. I'll put on my suit. I'll get through this. He could have dealt with it uh, years ago, three years ago, and he didn't. I mean, there is something about, you know, he was like the polite grandson, you know, trying to explain YouTube to his grandmother. Um, and, you know, just, you know, I remember when the, the senator from Alaska, Ted Stevens, said that the internet was a series of tubes. And you still have sort of that that type of cluelessness amongst those who are making, you know, the legislation about this. And, I don't – you know, it's it's also studied and it, it there was something so false about all of it that I, I don't know how to to interpret him. Well, that's an interesting point. So, Parker, would you have liked him better if he'd showed up in his hoodie and his T-shirt and his jeans and his sneakers? Would you have liked him – I mean, look, he's always going to be no matter where he goes – um, I mean, he can't change the fact that he will be the most powerful and wealthy person in the room in almost any room that he enters that doesn't have Jeff Bezos in it. Um, so, how should he act? <laughs> like, what's the right way to act when you're that person? Um, but, but would you like him better if he just showed up as himself? It wouldn't have made any difference to me either way, really. <laughs> it, well, optics are really important for him for because he's appearing to different segments or different types of people. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, But really the more troubling point about all of it is I think that everyone kind of gets the sense that, yes, this is theater. This is just something for us to talk about. The bigger issue is actual actual policymaking can't happen when this amount of 
technological ignorance is is still <laughs> pervasive. Not to say that it's not possible, but Facebook kind of has become the scapegoat for all of these privacy issues where, you know, Google and um, other types of marketing data, co data collection firms do exactly the same thing and have done for many years. So they're really, they should be part of the conversation too, but that's that's not really what all of this circus has been about, at least, you know, this week's coverage anyway, which was just everyone wanted to see Mark Zuckerberg get yelled at and right. see and, if he felt sorry. And he did. I mean, I think the arrogance was on, dis in, on display on maybe on both sides of the table. And, and I did think a couple of moments, one moment that leapt out at me was when I think it was Senator Kennedy, who I think is from Louisiana, was complaining about the fact that the, the terms and conditions are too hard to understand. He said they ought to be in English, not in Swahili. Well, of course, they are in Swahili. They are in every possible language in the world. Uh, one thing that people fail to understand about Facebook, a point that Clay Shirky has made, that if everybody in America right now deleted their Facebook accounts, the company would take about a 10% hit. You know, that's how big Facebook is. We're not that big to Facebook. We're not at least that overwhelmingly big to Facebook. I have this um, student from Kenya. Uh, who uh, is constantly making these really fascinating points. I'm really at a point where I feel like I should just pay some percentage of her tuition back to her because I, I get more material out of her than she gets out of me. Um, and so she made an interesting point. She's, she thinks that – and I think a lot of young people see Zuckerberg and they think that even though they may resent him or, or whatever, that there's 30, 40 percent of him that still believes that kind of utopian idea of Facebook that, you know, that really is a good place for people to connect. And, and if everybody did it kind of the way that he thought people were going to do it to begin with, which is just to talk to one another and share stuff and share things about their lives and, and not have it get all politicized and stuff like that, that it would just be so much better and the world would be a better place. And she thinks that they, they want him, the whole company wants him out there because he's the last person there who still believes any of that stuff. You know, that Sheryl Sandberg and everybody else, they, they understand the business model is everything. And so, I don't know, you're over there know, grimacing Colin, and making faces. You know, when you talk about his idealism when you go back to the dorm room and the roots of Facebook, it was about ranking girls, meeting girls, and possibly flim-flamming uh, his, his co-workers who brought him in on their project. So I don't know that there is any essential idealism to overcome. <laughs> Well, although, I mean, so the interesting point. First of all, if we were all completely understood in terms of how we acted as college undergraduates, I think most of us would be really in a lot of trouble right now. Um, but Bill, it also gets to that point. Like that's sort of the David Fincher version of, of, uh, of Mark Zuckerberg. You can't – if you're ever depicted that way, no matter who you are, um, that's who you become in the minds of pretty much everybody. Yeah, I, I, I mean, to me, he's, he's, he's just a cipher. Like, I don't know if there's anything, any soul mm -hmm. there. And that's a, in some ways, that's like a ridiculous thing for me to say. <laughs> I don't know Mark Zuckerberg. There's the hot take for the week mm -hmm. that Bill Usman does not personally know Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> and yet, when, when, when I see him and, and, and listen to him, he seems to me like someone who doesn't really have any real connection to human beings. And so that makes it seem very unlikely to me that his whole mission is really trying to connect the whole world in some ways rather than to just enrich 
himself. He, you know, a person who it's, – it's an interesting experiment in what if you could create a human being who, you know, rates a perfect 10 on analytical intelligence and a perfect zero on emotional intelligence, what would that be? And it's Bill Gates. Mark Zuckerberg. Well, well, it's yeah, it's all of them. There's actually. a lot of them. You're, you're right. You're right. All right. So we got to. I want to shift gears here just so we have time. We're going to go from uh, the, the halls of Congress to the aisles of movie theaters. There's a new movie out called A Quiet Place. Uh, one piece that we read about this uh, says because of the unique demands that A Quiet Place places on viewers, it raises vexing questions about how one goes about watching a film in the 21st century because the premise is that in a few years our planet will be taken over by murderous, sightless creatures uh, endowed with extraordinarily good hearing. So very much of the movie is about being incredibly quiet. Listen, let's listen to a BBC Radio 1 presenter, uh, Nick Grimshaw, uh, talking about the problems that he ran into. So you get into the cinema yesterday afternoon, it's really quiet, like proper quiet. Like, you know, like, the film's on and it sounds like this. Like Emily Blunt going across the screen. Kid going across the screen. Silent. Man across from me is like this. Bear in mind, this is a silent film. It's a tense horror. The essence of this film is it's quiet. Oh, I'm like, shut up! You can't make any noise! I know we like snacks at the cinema, and that's 50% of the reason I'm going. This film, you can't have snacks. Then the man on the other side. No, shut up! You can't make any noise. All right. I should say that uh, we're about to, a little bit later, talk about a Wes Anderson movie. The last time we talked about a Wes Anderson movie, it was Grand Budapest Hotel and our uh, one of our panelists. He almost never does the nose because he's just way too crabby uh, to do it. Uh, it was uh, filmmaker Gorman Bouchard, who has been known in movie theaters on many occasions to turn to the person sitting behind them and tell them that they're eating popcorn too loudly. Uh, he doesn't like the noise that their mouth is making. But Parker, this is, this is something – I mean it's really – Really jumping out at people because of the incredible quietness that is the theme of this movie. But that's not an isolated thing. Everybody either is a chomper, eater, noisemaker, or someone resenting exactly that kind of person. There's all these articles that come out every every once in a while that are, uh, you know, everyone in the office hates when you do this or when you do this, and it just it just serves to make you paranoid. And I bring it up because I think that people kind of have that feeling about movie theaters as well. Some people don't care. Some people really, really care. And there's it's really hard to find an in-between. It's basically, you're going to piss someone off no matter what. <laughs> but I, I think this is a very specific thing, Bill, because this, I mean, look, we, it's odd because we go to the movies partly to be with other people. We want to see the movie with other people. We want to see, we have all kinds of other reasons for being in the theater. But then, you know, hell is other people, particularly oh, yeah. if they're doing what we don't want to do. So take it. Oh, yeah. I, I will only go to the movies at like nine o'clock on Monday morning because I want to ensure that there's as few people around me as as possible. The only food you should eat is Jello. And no, <laughs> actually, but interestingly enough, I get really, really, really triggered when people are talking, when they're using their devices. 
people eating in the movie theater, that's never bothered me before. Now I'm really afraid that because of this, it is going to start bothering me. I'm going to be hyper aware of it now. Um, that hasn't bothered me before. But but the noise that people make and, – and I actually do think it has something to do with the way our media consumption has transformed that we're so used to using it in our homes where you can do whatever you want. You can have conversations. You can get up and you can walk away and then that gets transferred into the movie theater. Okay. You know, uh, last week I went to see this terrific play by Susan Laurie Parks down yeah. at Yale Rep. Uh, when Father Comes Came Home from the War. When Father Came Home from the Wars. And it's it's beautiful. It's based on the Odyssey. And uh, it's got beautiful language. It's about the Civil War. It's about slavery. And, you know, before they start, they make an announcement. If you have candy, if you want to eat some, unwrap your cellophane now because there's some study that no matter how quietly we handle cellophane, it's going to be loud. Honest to goodness, it was somebody behind me and they must have had like a super gigantic bag of chips in the middle of this play. In a play, yeah. Which was insane. Right. I mean, this that actually is a cultural shift that I don't, I'm not exactly sure when it happened. But I mean, I certainly grew up in a world where you didn't bring any food into a play. A play was a place where you went there and you sat very quietly, you, didn't have a, you know, big 32-ounce soda in a cup holder uh, at your seat. You didn't have any food with you. It was a play. Uh, you know, we understand that the movie business – well, I mean, the movie business would be out of business if people didn't eat. The movie theater business. Right. I mean, yeah. they actually make all of their money. That's if, correct. If you want to bankrupt yep. the movie th- theater business, go there, except for James Hanley, who doesn't even allow food uh, in a Trinity Cine Studio. But if you want to bankrupt the multiplex, well, if everybody just showed up and watched the movie and went home, that, that's what would happen. I mean, their entire profit comes from their concessions. Can I make one more crab? Yeah, crab. Uh, that's what this is for. I go to the, the uh, wonderful Baby Grand Jazz series at the Hartford Public Library on – uh, Sunday afternoons from time to time and folks come and do crosswords which I at least the crossword people are just writing yeah, on, on, with pencils yeah. but people are on their phones the kids are are playing war games first person shooter war games at a jazz concert I don't get it well, I mean, that is maybe this is – we can go back and pretend that we are uh, Parker Who, uh, U.S. senators, berating Mark Zuckerberg for all the digital ills of this age. Um, I mean, to me, that's a separate question, right? Whether you're eating and making disgusting noises uh, in a play or movie is one set of questions. Whether you're fully present there, which people increasingly aren't. Like, I, I mean, I feel as though the people who are making the disgusting noises – who might be me. I like to eat popcorn in movie theaters, but um, are fully present watching the movie. They just also are eating popcorn. There's this whole other sort of multi-screen experience where, you know, some New York theaters even for a while set aside a Twitter section so you could you could tweet that you were doing <laughs> you're rolling your uh, let the record show that Parker has just rolled her eyes. No, I wasn't rolling my eyes. I, I just uh, I forgot that that's a thing. And, and I wasn't introduced to this concept until um Actually, at an independent film festival of all places, but people who live tweet movies, which I still don't quite understand. I guess you you make comments about the movie as you're watching it, which I I wonder how are you paying attention to the movie? Mm-hmm. To your question about being present, mm-hmm. I think you could be checked out of a movie even if you weren't eating food, though. I think that's entirely possible. 
Um, but uh, you're probably not going to be making a lot of noise as right. you're being checked out. Right. I, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm, Bill, I'm back to the hell is other people thing because there, there, sometimes I th- I'm pretty precious about this myself. And I actually think the number of people who talk in movie theaters is on the downturn. I, I, I encounter that less. I'm like you. I probably go in the less crowded times of day. And a lot of it depends on the movie that you're going to and whether people <laughs> with the kind of person who's there would, would you know, would not want to talk. I have fewer problems. I encounter fewer problems with people doing that. But it is – I do want silence. I want space. I want to be able to watch the movie. But then I think, you know, I don't know, the Globe Theater and, you know, in Elizabethan times, people were probably gnawing on all kinds of root vegetables and yelling stuff at the and stage. Throwing, right? Yeah, throwing the vegetables at the stage. I just don't want to be in that particular audience. Um, and, oh, hell is other people is like my life mantra. There's no <laughs> there's no question about that. But I wish I could say that I feel like that, that noise-making – the theaters on the decline that hasn't been my experience you know in fact I went to Cine Studio, which I see as like this hollowed place where people should understand how to watch movies. And um, I was seeing the post and there was like a couple sitting to the right of me where I, I felt like the the husband was giving his life like a, his wife a history lesson throughout the entire movie until I finally like asked him, would you just stop talking? And that's in a place where I think – my expectation is that the audience knows better. If I go to the movies at, at a basic Cineplex, you know, on a Saturday night, then I then I then then I deserve whatever happens to me. But if I go to Cine Studio, my expectations are higher. So maybe I'm more triggered and on alert also at the same time. Well, James does not let people eat. Uh, all right. Well, well, why don't we take a break here? When we come back, we want to talk uh, to you about the latest release from Wes Anderson. It's Isle of Dogs. We all went to see it. We'll tell you more. All right, we are indeed back. Welcome back to The Nose, our weekly cultural roundtable here in the studio with us. I think we have the two newest Nose panelists together. I think you guys are the uh, the most two recent ones uh, up the ladder, if that's the direction that we're heading in when we go on The Nose. Bill Usman is Director of Media Literacy and Digital Cultural Graduate Program at Sacred Heart University. Parker Hu, a graphic designer who performs in several different local bands. Uh, Kate Russian, uh, a grizzled veteran uh, of The Nose. She's a poet who teaches writing and literature for Hartford Youth Scholars. Um, all right. So uh, we all went to, to see uh, the Isle of Dogs this week or Isle of Dogs uh, this week. It's a Wes Anderson effort. Uh, it is uh, in the stop action animation um, uh, mode or genre. Um, let's hear a little clip from it. Let's see. I mean, let me think about how I need to set this clip up. Uh, basically, <laughs> any clip that we play are gonna, is going to be a bunch of dogs talking to one another. Uh, they are voiced as they will be uh, in a Wes Anderson film by Fam- actors. In this case, you'll hear Bob Balaban, uh, Edward Norton, Bill Murray, Brian Cranston, and Jeff Goldblum. Brian Cranston, we should say, plays Chief, who is something of a protagonist in this ensemble film. Uh, they are discussing their favorite foods, which we should say, given their present circumstances, they no, no longer have access to. So this is a wistful conversation about foods bygone. Okay, I got a question. What's your favorite food? 
double portion of doggy chop from the can mixed into a bowl of broken puppy snaps with a vitamin crushed up into it. King's the spokes dog for that. He's the doggy chop dog. Yeah, used to be. Was that your daily meal? Not always. My master was a school teacher. We weren't rich, you know. You? A center cut Kobe ribeye seared on the bone with salt and pepper. Wow. It was my birthday supper every year. Mine's hot sausage jacketory style. The snack vendor always saved me one on game days. Mm. Duke? Uh, green tea ice cream. My master had a sweet tooth I probably inherited from her. You heard the rumor, right, about Doggy Chop? Remind us again? Brand. What rumor? Yeah, they folded. Oh, no. Mm. Donkey? Doggy Chop folded? How about you, Chief? What was your favorite food? Me? Oh, I don't care. Garbage, trash, scraps of rubbish. I'm used to leftovers. Mm, yeah. Mm. Of course, I wasn't always astray. Wait, what'd you say? I said, of course, I wasn't always astray. Really? really? Tell us about that. All right, so those are the dogs talking. Uh, I will try to set up this movie for you, which, by the way, will not involve spoilers because this movie, the setup is just sort of laid out for you instantly, uh, which is kind of a, a little bit of a Wes Anderson thing all by itself, but uh, maybe even more than usual. It takes place in Japan uh, in, the, in a city of the future, maybe I think 20 years from now, so not very far uh, in the future, um, a uh, somewhat autocratic and demagogic leader has decided, uh, who comes from a long line of, uh, of cat-worshipping uh, people has decided to make dogs a scapegoat for all of society's problems. Uh, there are, they are blamed for having various diseases and maybe uh, posing a threat to human health. Uh, they are therefore exiled to what is called Trash Island uh, off the off the shore. So it's just this, this huge, extensive, uh, hand-shaped garbage heap uh, of an island uh, offshore where all of the dogs from this uh, from this city uh, have to go and live. The dogs all talk in English, as you can hear. Um, the uh, characters all speak in Japanese, except for the one English-speaking uh, character. Uh, and and so basically, then what we see is a movie about whether or not these dogs are ever going to get to come back. Uh, the uh, hero is a boy named Atari who hopes that he can get his beloved dog Spots back off the island. And now I will stop. Um, so I don't know. I you know I don't know who wants to go first. Uh, you want to go first? I'll go first. Okay. Yeah. Uh, there's one thing I want to say to the adults who are thinking of taking children who may not be familiar with uh, Wes Anderson's quirky vision, and that I, is that I think it's important that the adults take the PG-13 seriously. Because it really is a rather grim dysutopia, especially in the beginning. Uh, I happened to see the movie with a um, with I think a seven year old in the audience, and I think he was visibly freaked out at the beginning of the film. And I think his parents just thought they were coming to like a Disney Disney esque, 
cartoon, and it is not that, especially at the beginning. So that's one thing I want to say. Take it's that PG thirteen right. for Isle of it, the Dogs. It's seriously. a great observation because I think uh, bleak dystopias have become so commonplace that we just sort of we, they roll off us like water off a mm-hmm. duck's back, right? I mean, Ready Player One <laughs> is a bleak dystopia. I mean, a lot of the movies that are out at any given time are different kinds of a bleak dystopia. And I remember sitting at Ready Player One, which we saw, I think, for last week's show, and thinking, oh, yeah, this is like what our grandchildren are are expected to actually have to live with. I'm going to be dead by the time this is a reality. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a really a great point. Well, Bill, maybe, maybe we should start with Wes Anderson because there's, it's impossible to just talk about a Wes Anderson movie as a movie. People always wind up talking about Wes Anderson because they have to deal with whatever built up um, affections or disaffections they they have towards him based on his oeuvre, which is a very particular kind of oeuvre. So, uh, and I know this was the case for you. Yeah, I mean, you know, he you do have to talk about him because he is kind of an auteur in 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 the way that 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 term was was really meant. He does have a vision, and he does bring it to the screen. I, you know. Kate's comment is 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 an argument for media literacy on the part of the public that just because something is animated doesn't make it a children's movie. I think of this as kind of the most adorable Holocaust film ever made, which is a strange phrase, but um, it is it is his his own vision. Although maybe we'll get to something troubling about that. Um, it's an absolutely I think visually beautiful film. It really, I, I thought it was a, a a really, really fascinating and gorgeous visual aesthetic experience. Um, and you know, the story does end well, well, um, without spoiling too much. But I do think there's there's something about the fact that that it is a Wes Anderson film and it is so much of a Wes Anderson film and yet it deals with Japanese culture supposedly that I think is something that has to be dealt with. We, I should say for people who are just drawing a blank with Wes Anderson, Wes Anderson is the maker of Bottle Rocket, The Royal Tenenbaums, Rushmore, and The Fantastic Mr. Fox, Darjeeling Limited, uh, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, Moonrise Kingdom, Grand Budapest Hotel, and now this one. I don't know if I left it out. did that without notes. Uh, I just want to note. Um, and I'm proud. Um, so, well, let's get to the disturbing part, what I think Bill is referencing with the disturbing part. So one of the knocks about Wes Anderson, and Parker, I think you linked to a review that that gets into this a little bit is he's been accused of using people from other cultures as kind of arm candy. That in Darjeeling Limited, you know, the 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 Indian backdrop and the backdrop of Indian people uh, is basically just that. It's a backdrop for the problems of depressed upper middle class white people. Um, here, he's got a different thing going on, which is he's appropriating zillions of different Japanese movie tropes in a very you know, enthusiastic, cinephile kind of way. Uh, but he's attempting to tell a Japanese story when he's not Japanese. Uh, and uh, the Japanese characters are in some ways, you should pardon the expression, inscrutable to us because th- their words are usually not translated. I, I don't know. Um, people have had problems with this. Should they? I was actually surprised by that article. Um Maybe just because I'm a little biased. I saw the movie and my main takeaway was, oh my goodness, this is beautiful and really cute. And it didn't ever occur to me that that it would be, uh, I guess, 
looked at with such a such a sharp eye in, in terms of culture and appropriation. Well, let me back up. So okay. first of all, when I'm watching a movie, I, I really try to look at it as a a piece of art, a media. Is a story well told? Is you know, is a picture good? Composition, the craft, the dialogue, that sort of thing. So uh, the the political side of things is oh, he's appropriating this and this culture is not really uh, top of mind. But that's it. Is it is it fine that he used it? I mean. It really depends on who you are and how much you care, I suppose. I think, from my point of view, his use of the style of the um, the translations, or even the way that certain media of certain parts of the story would start as you know a narration and then jump into a background frame and then turn into a whole new graphic form of narration, it's just all very creative and also in you know much like much of like the. Um, Japanese manga style, so I think he did a really good job with that, and I think if you're gonna do a good job with it, then I'm not sure how else you want to take it. That's that's just my view. I don't I don't want to look at it so so harshly. Not in this case because really it's a it's a point A to point B story. It's it's not a new story. It's it's you know very standard and it's just done very well. Mm. Kate, I see your head bobbing over there. Yeah, you know, I I didn't read anything about the movie before I saw it. I'd only seen uh, the poster and really didn't think much of the Japanese that's on the poster. So I was actually very surprised to see that it was set in a Japan. Um, and I, I didn't know what to think about it, really. And I kept thinking, well, I don't know what to think about this. And, and I, so I was really looking forward to coming in today. Uh, but a couple of things I will say there there are two haiku in the in the movie, and one is uh, and I laughed out loud because one is hysterically bad, deliberately bad, and I thought that was hysterical. And then the other one I thought was strong, which was good. And then uh, Yoko Ono does one of the voiceovers, and she's been a favorite of mine since I I saw her. Um, uh, on the last day of her one-woman show at the at the uh, Museum of Modern Art, so she's one of my my heroes. But I will say I was disappointed. I was glad she was in the movie. I thought that was a hoot, but I was disappointed with what Wes Anderson did with her character, because she she she's a scientist who breaks down, and then the young white girl exchange student from Cincinnati shakes her and snaps her out of it. And that just really struck me as odd, an odd way to have Yoko Ono in a, in a film. Yeah, well, Bill, there. I mean, okay, I should declare my prejudices. And the fact that I was just able to name all those movies should out me already. Um, which is, I'm a big Wes Anderson fan, and I think his movies are really important. I can, you know, mount a, an explanation of that if necessary. Here, I get all the things that that, you're, that Kate is saying, and I think that's, that scene in particular is problematic. But I, I feel as though the movie, first of all, is full of uh, affection and very knowing. I mean, he's just gone to school on Japanese popular culture and some of Japanese classical culture, and he's clearly in love with Japan. I mean, uh, having been to Japan, I fell in love with it uh, in, in a way that I recognize in him. But I think the other thing that's important here, and I don't know how intentional it was, but I think one of the things that this movie ultimately 
does is say, look, if this were a foreign culture treating dogs this way uh, and, and, and throw in a white American girl who tried to uh, rise up and object to it and was then like, kicked out of that particular country, we'd think that was appalling except that it's going on in our country and it's happening to people. I mean the, the allegory here, the, the, the transposition is kind of necessary maybe to get that allegory going. Yeah, and and that is a very good allegory for the t- the times that we're living in. I I'm not a a big Wes Anderson fan like you are, although I really really did love um, the Fantastic Mr. Fox, his other animated film. Uh, I like his animated films more than I like his 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 films with live action human beings, and the dogs definitely are more interesting than the people in this movie as well, which is one of those critiques. I have no doubt that Wes Anderson's intentions are are very very good, and uh, you know I I do agree that I like the story as allegory for the politics of the time that we're living in. I, and I, I do think there's a little bit of a connection between Wes Anderson and Mark Zuckerberg, but it's, it's not in terms of intentions where I, I doubt Zuckerberg's intentions very much. I don't doubt Anderson's intentions. But in terms of this particular film, um, the connection I see is like a certain, like a certain kind of cluelessness like that in 2018, he wouldn't anticipate some pushback about his depiction of another culture or wouldn't care. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. Is that a bold statement or is it just a certain amount of cluelessness? Um, I just before we wrap here, one thing that I, I I tend to be less interested in the in the stop action ones, the two of them, um, although I, I've enjoyed both of them because one of the things I like about um, I almost said Zuckerberg, one of the things I like about Wes Anderson is that he gets performances out of certain kinds of actors that you would just I mean Tilda Swinton isn't typically a funny um, uh, person, uh, but you know he gets performances out of actors that you just don't see coming from them in any way. But I, can I just say I think Brian Cranston is amazing in this movie. This dog that he plays is a typical oh, yeah. Wes Anderson character, full of self-loathing, full of distrust, depressed, um, harmed in all kinds of ways, <laughs> daring to nurture some little spark maybe of hopefulness about some kind of better emotional life. And, and Cranston has to do his part of it anyway entirely with his voice. The now, voices are fantastic, yeah. are amazing. And it's, and, it, and it's part of the charm of the film, hearing those voices, the way they're done in this very low-key kind of way, but coming out of these dogs' faces is absolutely charming. And I, and I do, I, I really did enjoy the, the human doggy aspect of the film a lot as someone who's had a beloved canine in my life. Uh, I, I really enjoyed the dogs and their different personalities and their conversations and their analysis of what, how they would approach a certain, certain problem they were facing. All right. Are we done? Last word? Absolutely cute. All right. (laughs) Absolutely cute. All right. Those are two last words. We'll take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to make some recommendations.
I'm gonna do the credits now, but would it be too much to ask everybody who's listening to stop eating, please? Thank you. Today's show was produced by Max McPants, Seamus Curry, and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish is not a dog. The part of Bill Curry was played by Tilda Swinton. On Monday's show, The Scramble looks at a poetry controversy in Maine. And now, back to Colin. All right, so um, we're going to make some recommendations. And now I'll start over here with you, Kate Russian. All right, this past week I had the honor of meeting the civil rights activist Shirley Sherrod. S-H-E-R-R-O-D, and she has a new book called The Courage to Hope, How I Stood Up to the Politics of Fear. Uh, She was the uh, first African-American director of rural development in Georgia in the Obama administration, and uh, she was uh, brighted, and uh, Obama and, and them fell for it. So I'm, I was, it was really inspiring to hear her speak, and I'm looking forward to reading her book. April is Poetry Month. I've got here two poetry events. Uh, the Hartford Public Library, Big Read, is presenting an evening with poet and Yale professor Claudia Rankin, who is the author of Citizen and American Lyric. And that's on April 26th, starting at 530 to 8 p.m. And uh, the uh, website is www.hplct.org. I've been immersed in Citizen for the past uh, month, and I highly recommend it. It's it's not your your usual book of poetry. And then um, the Norwich Norwich Arts Center is honoring uh, the Connecticut Poet Laureate Emeritus Marilyn Nelson uh, with a celebration of the African-American experience uh, at a poetry reading that I'm part of on Saturday, April 28th at 7 p.m. And I'll be joining Rhonda Ward, who is the new Poet Laureate of New London, uh, Charles Fort, uh, Professor of Emeritus uh, Nebraska U, and Frederick Douglass Knowles, who teaches at uh, Three Rivers. And right. you- I, I, we need just, just to be able to get to everybody else. I'm going to just jump over. Um, I realize that uh, I've never endorsed any fiction on this show, mm-hmm. and fiction's a really important part of my life. So I want to endorse a novel uh, called Asymmetry by Lisa Halliday. And it's a... It's a story that's told in two sections and you don't understand the connection between the two sections until you read a coda at the end. And that could sound gimmicky, but it's not gimmicky at all because it's done with such subtlety and beauty. And it's a really powerful tale about power and who gets to tell whose stories. And remarkably, it's a debut novel, which Hmm. just blows me away. And say the name of it again? Asymmetry by Lisa Halliday. Okay. Uh, And Parker, who, what have you got for us? I have two things that are closely related. Um, A while back, I stumbled across the Pride and Prejudice series that BBC produced back in late 90s, I want to say. It's on Amazon Prime. Excellent. Very well done. And it got me very interested in the Victorian era. Which one? Uh, who's in it? Like, who's... Oh, uh, it's uh, Jennifer L. and um, Colin Firth. Okay. Oh, that's, That's that the one. one. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent acting. 
Um, and so I became really interested in the Victorian era and all of the, the habits and things like that or terminology. So I'm reading this book called How to Be a Victorian, A Dawn to Dusk Guide to Victorian Life by Ruth Goodman. And she writes it in a very compelling way. She actually relived a lot of the uh, the type of uh, things that they did back then and writes about it in a way that's very easy to understand. Um, and it's just a really compelling book. It's very interesting. <laughs> oh, well, a few weeks ago, I recommended a restaurant, which Kate actually took me up on, uh, called Division West in West Hartford Center. So um, this past week, my son and I uh, went across the street to a brand new restaurant in West Hartford Center. It's called Pry. I think that's how you say it, P-R-A-I. Um, it's kind of an upscale Thai restaurant. I, I sort of worried that the days of the Thai dinner that two people could have for you know, 45 or 50 bucks, uh, maybe on the way out, uh, and or maybe even 30 or 35 bucks. Um, so this is a little bit pricier, but the food is really terrific. And it is a family uh, who does it. Uh, they're using some of their grandmother's recipes. Uh, I would really recommend if you're just stopping in there for a glass of wine and appetizers. You have to try these Thai-style dumplings. I've been a lot of dumplings. I've never eaten dumplings like this one. They're really good. And then uh, the, uh, my other recommendation is um, uh, a book. You're gonna, this may surprise people that I'm recommending this book. It's called Unbelievable, My Front Row Seat to the Craziest Campaign in American History. It's by Katie Turr. Um, and it's – I'm actually listening to it as an audio book and um, so I'm listening to Katie Turner narrate it, which she's really good at, although it's kind of interesting the, the parts of it that she's not entirely good at. But it's – you know, if you can stand to live through the trauma of the 2015-2016 campaign one more time, she'll tell you all kinds of things that you didn't know. There's perspectives on this and this is really much – very much in my wheelhouse uh, and um, there's stuff that I'm finding out from the book that I hadn't known, and she's kind of an engaging person. And I would also just mention, I knew this going into the book. Uh, there's no way to have a spoiler here. This is a nonfiction book. But um, her parents are were famous. Uh, she grew up in this kind of um, news hound family. Her, fa- her parents launched a helicopter news reporting service uh, in Los Angeles, and her parents were the ones who were tracking the white Bronco uh, the day that O.J. Simpson uh, took it on the lam. Uh, they're famous for also the Reginald, Reginald Denny case. They, they're the ones who actually brought their helicopter right down to uh, to where Reginald Denny was to try to scare people uh, away from him. So she's got kind of an and, oh, I, I buried the lead. Her father, Robert Tour, is this famous guy, except that he's now uh, Zoe Tour. He's become a woman. Uh, so Katie's got a pretty interesting story, even if you take the Trump part out of it. Uh, anyway, I, I recommend that one. And yeah, the audio book's kind of fun. It's been kind of fun to have this panel here, too. Uh, Kate Russian, Bill Usman, and Parker Yahoo. Thanks for everybody who, uh, thanks to everybody who worked on this show today. We will be back. You can, you can tell I'm tired. I'm starting to kind of jumble my words up. We'll be back, I swear to God, on Monday. Yeah, 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 yeah.